The scripture for this morning's message is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 1031. The title of the message this morning is Recapturing the Wonder of Christmas. After a brief introduction, Luke begins his gospel with the archangel Gabriel announcing the conception and birth of two children, both under miraculous circumstances. Elizabeth was barren and beyond childbearing years, yet the angel Gabriel tells her husband, Zachariah, that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And we know that son is John the Baptist. Now certainly that was a miraculous birth, but it had happened before. You remember the same thing was true of Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was barren and beyond childbearing years and God gave her Isaac. Well, the second pregnancy announcement that Gabriel makes in Luke chapter 1 takes miraculous to a whole new level. And it's that second birth announcement that we're going to look at this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to your word in asking that you would please see fit to speak loud and clear the message of these verses to your people today. Pierce our hearts and minds with the truth that we may be changed we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Can you imagine if you could go back a hundred years and introduce people to one of these? 
to an iPhone. With this device, you can talk to people all over the world. And not just talk, you can actually see their face while you talk to them. And that's just the beginning of what this device can do. My iPhone has an entire library of books, thousands of books in my phone. With this device, you can watch an almost endless list of television shows and documentaries. You can access pretty much any information you need from recipes to news to statistics, you name it. It's a calculator, it's a flashlight, it's a camera. You can balance your checkbook. There's almost no end to what this device can do. Can you even imagine how blown away people would have been in 1923 if they could get their hands on one of these? Yet for us, just an iPhone. Oh, we love our phones, but, but there's no real sense of wonder and amazement. Oh, this really is an amazing device. But for us, it, I mean, it's not that big a deal. Why? Well, it's old news. I wonder if the same thing could be said about the Christmas story. If you stop and think about the events surrounding Christmas, the conception and birth of Jesus, it's mind-blowing. Think about what we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate what's called the incarnation. Maybe you've heard that word, not sure what it means. Well, it comes from the word carnal. The word carnal means flesh. The incarnation is the Son of God becoming flesh and blood, human. What? God in the flesh? This is the wonder of all wonders. But when you've heard the Christmas story countless times, you can lose that sense of awe and wonder that it should inspire. And not only that, but the way society celebrates the Christmas holiday seems to cheapen it, doesn't it? And that can cause us to lose sight of how amazing the Christmas story really is. And it really is sad for something so indescribably wonderful to no longer leave us awestruck. It really is sad. If only somehow we could recapture that, that sense of awe and wonder. Maybe if somehow we could see the Christmas story with fresh eyes, we could once again be truly amazed. If, if we could just be so moved by this story that it would inspire you and I to new heights of worship and obedience, wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what I pray will happen today. I want to help us recapture the wonder of Christmas. And I think the key to that is seeing God at work in the incarnation. I think if we see God at work in the incarnation, it can help us recapture the wonder of Christmas. This morning, I'm going to lead us through this story as we take four steps Together, that I pray really will help us to recapture the wonder of this Christmas story. Here's step one. 
Look at the providence of God in the incarnation. Look at the providence of God in the incarnation. What do I mean? We need to stop and see God behind the scenes orchestrating every detail of his son's birth. In the previous passage before this birth announcement of Jesus, we learned that Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. It is the sixth month of her pregnancy when Gabriel appears to Mary. This time, Gabriel doesn't go to Jerusalem, which is where he went to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Now he travels north of Jerusalem in the region of Galilee to an almost unknown town, despised little town of Nazareth. And we see two specific ways that God arranges the details of Jesus' birth. His providence. Let me make sure you understand what I mean when I talk about God's providence. God's providence is his working behind the scenes to orchestrate things, to bring about his purposes. Here's the first way we see God working behind the scenes, arranging the details of Jesus' birth. First, in his choice of a mother for Jesus. The recipient of this pregnancy announcement is introduced in verse 27. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The most important thing for you to notice about Mary is that she is a virgin. If you read verse 27, Luke tells us that twice in one verse. He don't want you to miss this. Mary is a virgin. That's the primary thing he wants you to know at this point about Mary. Gabriel is telling a young woman of 13 to 15 years old that she's going to have a child despite the fact that she is a virgin. Now I want you to think why this is so important. To accomplish his mission as both Savior and King would require Jesus to be more than just a man. You see, he was coming to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. To be the perfect sacrifice for sin, Jesus would have to be man and yet be God. You see, to die for men, he would have to be man. But to be the perfect sacrifice, he would have to be sinless, which means he would have to be God. To be the Christ, he would have to be a descendant of King David. To be a descendant of King David, he would have to be what? Human. But if he's going to be the perfect king who is fit to rule over God's people for eternity, he would have to be more than just a man. He would have to be God. Do you understand? To be our Savior and King, Jesus had to be both God and man. That's why Mary had to be a virgin. Mary was human. So that would make Jesus what? Human. But God was his father, which would make him God. Now, Jesus isn't half God and half man. He's truly God, truly man. The fact that Mary was a virgin is important because it eliminates the fact, it elim excuse me, it eliminates the possibility that Jesus had an earthly father. You with me? How do we know Jesus didn't have an earthly father? 
Mary was a virgin. That's why it's critical that she be a virgin. The second way God arranged the details of Jesus' birth is not just in his choice of the earthly mother for Jesus, but in the choice of Jesus' earthly father. Verse 27, we are introduced to Jesus' earthly father. His name is Joseph. And we're only told one thing about Joseph. He was of the house of David. What does that mean? It means he's a direct descendant of King David. Now, even though Joseph was not Jesus' earthly father, he, he, excuse me, he was not Jesus' biological father. He was Jesus' legal father. Because a person's lineage for legal purposes was always traced on the father's side. So that means because Joseph was Jesus' legal father, Jesus was legally a descendant of David, according to the law. But why is that so important? Because if Jesus wasn't legally a descendant of David, he couldn't be the Christ. He couldn't be the promised king. God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 makes it clear that it would be one of David's descendants who would rule over God's people forever. By having Joseph as his earthly father, Jesus was legally a descendant of David. Jesus is God's son come to earth to be our savior and to be our king. That's only possible if he's God and man at the same time. That's only possible if he's legally a descendant of King David. You see what God's doing in his marvelous providence? He is orchestrating the details of Jesus' birth so that his perfect purpose is accomplished. Most of you have already heard the story, but I still marvel when I look back at the way God orchestrated the details that brought me to be the pastor here. A month before Becky ever called me, I had written in my prayer journal that I sensed God was going to lead me to a smaller church. In the months immediately before I came here, we were able to get completely out of debt. We couldn't have accepted the call here if we hadn't have been debt free. We only had one car. We knew living this far out of town, we would need a second car. Well, my insurance agent in Tupelo gave us a car, so we were able to get a second car without going into debt. God just was at work behind the scenes arranging all the details in advance so that his purpose could be accomplished. What I want you to see is that's exactly what God was doing in the birth of Jesus. And choosing Jesus' mother and choosing Jesus' father, his providence was at work. Listen, look at the providence of God in the incarnation and be amazed. That's step one to recapturing the wonder of Christmas. Now let's look at step two. Rejoice in the promise of God in the incarnation. Rejoice in the promise of God. In the incarnation. When God sent his son to be born of a woman, he was making good on a promise he had made to his people centuries before. Notice verse 28. Coming in, Gabriel said to Mary, Greetings, 
favored one, the Lord is with you. He calls Mary favored one. The word favored is based on the word for grace. You could say one who is a recipient of God's grace. And he says the Lord is with you. In the Old Testament, that normally means that God is with someone to empower them and protect them because he has some task for them. So he says, Mary, you are a recipient of God's grace and he is with you for a special task. In verse 29, you see Mary's perplexed. It means she's really confused. It's not just the fact that an angel's appeared to her. That'd be shocking enough. But what the angel says doesn't make sense to her. Why would God show His divine grace to Mary? Mary was not from a prominent family. She was not from a prominent city. She was from Nazareth, which was kind of looked down upon. She didn't possess any great degree of holiness or piety that would merit God's kindness to her. Mary's just an ordinary girl. A God-fearing girl, but an ordinary girl. But Gabriel reassures her again in verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. There's that word favor again. It means grace. You are a recipient of God's grace. Now, here's the question. How was Mary a recipient of God's grace? Here's how. She was chosen to give birth to the Son of God. You think Mary deserved that privilege? No. It was the grace of God that allowed her to give birth to God's Son. Now, verse 31, Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to become pregnant with a child, specifically a son. And God's already determined what the child's name is going to be. Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Now, there are several things that Gabriel tells Mary about this child. First, he tells us he will be great, verse 32. What does great mean? It means he will have an exalted status. How exalted would Jesus' status be? Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how exalted he would be. He would be great, the name above every name, the one before whom everyone would bow. The second thing Gabriel tells Mary about her son is that he will be the son of the Most High, verse 32. Most High is a title for God. So Gabriel is telling Mary, your child is going to be the son of God. So here we are. So far, Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to have a child. He's going to be the highly exalted Son of God. The next thing he tells Mary about this child is in verse 33. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, we've already noted that Jesus was legally a descendant of the house of David. But what you may not know is, beyond that, Mary 
Jesus' mother was also a descendant of King David. So that means not only was Jesus legally a descendant of King David, he was biologically a descendant of King David. That's critical because as we've already said, it makes Jesus eligible to fulfill the promise of God made to David. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. This descendant of David who would come to rule over God's people came to be referred to as the Messiah in Hebrew. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ, the anointed king. This is the one God would send to deliver his people from all their enemies. This is the one God would send to usher in days of prosperity like God's people had never known. What Gabriel is telling Mary is that her son Jesus is going to be that promised king. Highly exalted, son of God, the promised king. Next notice verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. The house of Jacob is just a reference to the nation of Israel. You may remember Jacob is the one God gave the name, what? Israel. So the house of Jacob just means the nation of Israel. He will reign over God's people forever. He's telling Mary, the reign of your son Jesus will extend through all the endless ages of eternity. And this too is part of the promise God made to David. 2 Samuel 7, 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there are many other places in scripture this same promise is repeated. Daniel 7, 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Listen, what Gabriel is telling Mary is that the child she will conceive and give birth to will be the long-expected deliverer and savior he would be the one to defeat their enemies he would be the one to give god's people unequaled prosperity that they had longed for jesus left heaven was born as a man and when he did that he was fulfilling god's promise to his people god's promise to send him a savior and a king imagine for a minute Somebody promised to give you a million dollars. That may or may not excite you, depending on who made the promise. But imagine the joy you'd have if you got a notice from the bank telling you that somebody had deposited a million dollars in your bank account. Now, I want you to think about something. What God promised here is far more wonderful than a million dollars. The value of God's promise is beyond price. Listen, what God promised was to send us his son. 
It's through His Son that we are rescued from sin and eternal damnation. You do realize that. It's through His Son that you and I have the hope of eternal life in heaven. In promising to give us His Son, God gave us more than we could ever dream of, more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever even imagine. When God, listen, when God sent Jesus to be born of Mary, He kept that promise. You understand? When God sent His Son to be born of a woman, He was keeping His promise to His people. Listen, we have Jesus. He has come. And as the Bible says, in Him all the promises of God are yes and amen. Rejoice in the promise of God in the incarnation. I want to show you step three to recapturing the wonder of Christmas. This is in verse 34 to 37. Marvel at the power of God in the incarnation. Marvel at the power of God in the incarnation. There's only one way to explain how God's Son could become man. The supernatural power of God. Look with me at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary isn't doubting what Gabriel said. She just doesn't understand how it's possible. How can she conceive a child? She's a virgin. You see, Gabriel's not telling her one day after you get married, you're going to have a kid. That's not what he's telling her. He's telling you, you're going to conceive a child right away. But for a virgin to conceive is humanly impossible. Gabriel explains in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, Gabriel doesn't explain exactly how Mary's conception will take place. He doesn't give the details why. Because the details are a mystery beyond human understanding. He simply says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, there are no sexual implications here. It simply states that she would conceive as a result of the activity of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase basically is telling her the same thing. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This same idea of the power of the Most High overshadowing you. We can see it in the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There it's describing after the tabernacle was set up in Exodus, God's presence and power settled on the tabernacle, sat down on the tabernacle. What Gabriel is telling Mary is, this child's going to be conceived the same way. The presence and power of God is going to settle on Mary. God's going to sit down on Mary. 
The last part of verse 35 is important. For that reason, the holy child will be called the Son of God. Now, think about this. Mary will conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of God. Because the child is going to be generated by an act of the Holy Spirit. He himself will be holy. Follow me here. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit means the child will have the very same nature as the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And because he has the very same nature as the Spirit of God, that makes the child God. And that makes him holy. The child is holy by virtue of the fact that he has the nature of God. He's holy because he is God. Mary asks how she, a virgin, can possibly conceive a child. The answer is the only possible answer by the supernatural power and presence of God. It's mind-blowing. Jesus would be human by virtue of his mother. And he would be God by virtue of his father. And Mary doesn't ask for a sign from Gabriel to prove what he said is true. No, but, but Gabriel gives her one anyway. Verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month for her who was called barren. Remember, I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. She had been unable to have children all of her life. Now she's well beyond childbearing years. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Gabriel appeared to her husband, Zachariah, and said, Your wife is going to have a son. Sure enough, she did get pregnant. Now, Mary did not know that, even though Elizabeth was six months pregnant. First of all, because they didn't live in the same town. Second of all, because we're told in Luke 1 that Elizabeth had kept herself secluded up to that point. The woman who was beyond the hope of having a child was going to have a child. That would be miraculous, too. How was that going to happen? Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's not humanly impossible for a virgin to conceive a child. But what's impossible with men is possible with God. Many people don't believe in the virgin birth because they said it's humanly impossible. You know what I say? You're absolutely right. It's humanly impossible. Listen. Some things you can't explain. You can only stand back and marvel at the infinite power of God. God created everything we see. On earth and in heaven above, he did it in the space of six days, and he did it with only a word. How do you explain that? 
You can't. You can only marvel at the indescribable power of God. God spoke the sun, the moon, the stars, and planets into existence and hung them from nothing. How do you explain that? You can't. You can only marvel at the supernatural power of God. Listen, God breathed into a pile of dirt and humanity was born. How do you explain that? You can't. You can only marvel at the limitless power of God. Now think about it. The Son of God the third person of the Trinity was born to a woman. He became man, yet remained God at the same time. God in the flesh. How do you explain that? You can't. You can only marvel at the incomprehensible power of God. I want to show you the fourth step to recapturing the wonder of Christmas. We see it in verse 38. Submit to the purpose of God in the incarnation. I think it's important for you and I to see how God would have us to respond to the Son of God coming to earth as a man. How would Mary respond to Gabriel's message that she's going to be pregnant? Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Now you and I see that term slave. Most of your Bibles probably have servant, but it really is the term slave. We see that as a derogatory term, but in this case, it's not. Slavery in that day was not like it is now. Did you know both David and Joshua were both referred to as the same, by the same word, the slave of the Lord? To be the servant of the Lord is a great privilege, not a drudgery. What Mary is doing is simply acknowledging that as the Lord's servant, her only proper response is what? Submission. God is her master. She must do his will. She doesn't second guess God. She doesn't ask for further proof. She humbly submits to God's plan. Notice what she said. May it be done to me according to your word. Now, when we think about her saying that, we, we pass that off without a lot of thought. But you have to keep some things in mind. Mary is not married yet. If she shows up pregnant, Joseph could end their engagement. And ending an engagement back then is not like it is today. You see, an engagement was a legally binding, uh, was a legally binding thing. To break an engagement, they would actually have to divorce. She would be publicly shamed. She could be convicted of adultery. Does anybody know what the penalty for adultery was? It involved big rocks being thrown at you until you are dead. 
Mary could not be sure what would happen to her. But she still submitted to the purpose of God. Now here's the question. Does God's purpose in the incarnation have implications for you and me? God sent his son, born of a woman. He is the Christ, the son of God. He is truly God. He is truly man. He will reign as king for eternity. That's the incarnation. What are the implications of that for us? If we're going to submit to God's purpose in the incarnation, what does that look like? Two things. Worship and obedience. Think about it. Two things we learn from the incarnation. Jesus is not just a man. He's God in the flesh. Therefore, as God, we owe him our what? Worship by virtue of the fact that he is God and also by virtue of the fact that he is king, we owe him our obedience. What do, what do we do with this amazing, wonderful news that the Son of God has been born, a man to reign over us forever as king, worship and obedience? If you were going to go to auto mechanics school, you'd have to learn how engines work. You'd learn all about engine combustion. You'd learn all about engine cooling systems. You'd have to learn how the brakes on cars work and different brake systems. You'd have, to, you'd have to learn everything from pistons to spark plugs. You'd have to learn what makes a car go. Now, would you learn all that just so you could say, wow, that's really awesome? No. There's a greater purpose for you learning those things. To enable you to diagnose and fix a car's mechanical problems. Are you with me? In the same way, I want you to think about something. The incarnation, it absolutely should move us to say, wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. It should move us to awe and wonder, but there's a higher purpose for understanding the incarnation. It's just not so we can go, wow, that's awesome. It's not just to move us to wonder and amazement. It's to move us to worship and obedience. There's a practical purpose. When you've heard the Christmas story a thousand times, you really can lose that sense of awe and wonder that it should inspire. And the way this world celebrates Christmas, they, they've dumbed it down and cheapened it so much. It, it can make you forget how amazing the Christmas story really is. But if you'll just stop, if you'll stop and see the work of God, in the incarnation. I think it'll help you recapture that sense of awe and wonder. Think about it. The uncreated one took on the form of one of his own creations. The king of heaven 
came to dwell on earth. The Son of God, who couldn't be confined to time or space, inserted Himself into time and space. The one whose footsteps had only known the untarnished streets of paradise came to walk in the dust and dirt of a broken world. The one who inhabits the royal palace in glory allowed himself to be born, born in a barn surrounded by smelly animals. The one who spoke the worlds into existence was reduced to the status of a lowly carpenter. The Son of God became man. And he did it to save us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the wonder of all wonders. Let's pray.